This week's Property Matters, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience to help shape your knowledge of the industry. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host today is myself, Brian Fox, and Carol Tallon. We have an exciting lineup today. First, we talk to Councillor Jim O'Leary, Finnegale, representing Dundrum and Dunleary Road Down County Council, on the clash between Hammerson and Dunleary Road County, County Council over three bedroom apartments. And in part two, Christina Buckley, property investor, will talk about buying property through your pension. A row has erupted between the owners of Dundrum Town Centre, Hammerson, and Dunleary Rutdown County Council over plans to build up to 900 apartments on the site of the old Dundrum Shopping Centre. Hammerson's company, Dundrum Retail Limited Partnership, has told the council it should scrap new requirements for a minimum of three plus bedroom units in large apartment blocks that are included among proposed amendments to its draft county development plan. So to discuss this on the line now is Councillor Jim O'Leary, Finnegale, who represents uh, Dundrum and Dunleary Rutdown County Council. Jim, this requirement is making life difficult for developers, and 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 it's, it's causing problems now, obviously, for Hammerson in, in relation to the Dundrum uh, development. Yeah, I, I suppose we have to take a step back and have to look at well, what what is the county council responsible for, and one one of its biggest objectives is to provide an overall strategic plan for the development of the county, taking into account demographic factors. You know, key to all of this is that we need to be able to deliver homes for people that live in the area. So one of the things we have to do is we have to put together a housing strategy and we have to do what's called called a housing need and demand assessment. And that means our planners, with the assistance of information provided by the Department of uh, Local Government and the ESRI, look at demographics in our area in terms of the number of people living here, the number of people that want to live here, family formations, the age of people, and then determine how many houses do we need. And what that whole assessment has shown is that when it comes to the building of new apartments, up to 20% of them in the existing built-up area, so in areas like Dundrum, must be three-bedroom apartments. So prior to that, people were happy, the planners were happy that we we only needed to be building one and two-bedroom apartments young people, people starting off because most of the housing surrounding them were three-bedroom semi-detached or four-bedroom houses. There's now a recognition that given the jump in population and the ongoing increase in population, new apartment developments also need to include three-bedroom apartments so that we can provide the necessary housing for people in this area. Yeah, that's all very well, Jim. But I mean, uh, were the um, were developers in, uh, did, did, were they involved with the with the uh, rationale on, on what you're talking about on these guidelines? Well, I can only I, I don't know what kind of expertise are available to the to the developers, but they they have deep pockets, an awful lot of them. They're able to employ all sorts of town planners when it comes to making submissions. So they're well aware of the legislative context to all of this. And um, so, yes, they're well aware of us. They understand the background to us. They mightn't like it because it has implications for their for their uh, financial models, if you like, and the amount of profit they may or may not uh, be able to make. It also has implications, whether we like it or not, around affordability. So, you know, if you if 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 if, uh, if you're a developer and you must build more three bedroom apartments, you're probably going to make less of a return on them compared with building much more two and one bedroom apartments. That's what that's what they're thinking of. For me as a, a county councillor, I have to look at it in the context of there is a requirement and our planners have set it out that says we must build more three bedroom apartments to assist in family formation, to address issues of affordability. From a developer's perspective, he's kind of saying, building more three bedroom apartments, that's far more expensive. That's going to make it more difficult for me to deliver affordable housing. So there's a tension there. Yeah. And uh, well, you know, wouldn't that lead to developers sort of abandoning Delirio altogether and moving off to other um, areas around the country or indeed around the city? Well, I think the Would, first thing that's going to happen is we have to finalise the council development plan. And I think as councillors, we're going to have to ask very hard questions of the executive who are putting forward these proposals. But then, you know, based on their answers, we're going to have to. We're going to have to realise at the same time, if we want to make and continue to have Dunleary down as a family-friendly county, then people must be able to buy three-bedroomed 
housing. That's the reality, or three-bedroom apartments. So it can't be an either-or. The tension will exist, and we'll have to work through how we resolve that. Well, this idea, mm-hmm. this idea of you know, it's very unlikely developers will abandon what is the premier uh, uh, county from a, a house price perspective. You know what I mean? Uh, this is the most sought-after area for people to want to live in. The idea that developers don't want to be involved in that, I would find surprising. Um, so, uh, what's your reaction this morning or this weekend to what um, Hammerson have said and, and their and their company, Dundrum Retail Limited Partnership, in relation to the old uh, Dundrum, Dundrum, excuse me, shopping centre? I recognise that it, 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 it absolutely impacts on what their projected uh, profitable outcomes are. No doubt about that. But I think we have to work together to come up with a with, with, with a solution that meets the requirements of the wider community. It can't simply be about developers determining what's in our best interest, uh, but they are an important part. You know, without the developers, we can't deliver either. Yeah, well, that's so, my point, yeah. It's it, 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 also raising uh, which is this whole idea of uh, the community centre, the idea of... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was bring that up. Uh, yeah. You know, importantly, I've had... Over the last two years has been developing the, the, the county development plan. The idea that we need to have a community centre as part of any future development in the wider Dundrum area and as part of that that we have a proper civic square where we can hold markets, uh, where we can gather to celebrate different events and again that's creating problems for the developer because the idea is that you know if they can't if they can't build apartments on it that's lost revenue for them. So these are all things that need to be negotiated and um, you know, there's land that, and, and, and what's critical to this is identifying a, a suitable site. So the council owns uh, different different parcels of land that might be the most suitable sites for for a community centre, a civic centre. Um, so the council needs to negotiate with Hammerson to see what is the best solution again for the wider community, acknowledging that. The developers and Hammerson are an important stakeholder in this whole process and key to the delivery of most of the solutions that we're looking for. Well, they, they say that, um, and I'm quoting here, they say the draft development plan needs to be amended to remove the very prescriptive requirement for apartments with three or four bed, bedrooms to allow applicants to make the case for a particular unit mix based on the particular attributes of local areas where a different mix might be appropriate. That they surely have a well, sorry, we're we're bound under legislation to do as what I've described as a, both a housing strategy and a housing need and demand assessment. We are we are we are bound by the law to do that, and every individual county must do that. We have a responsibility to ensure that if the demographics are suggesting that we need more three-bedroom apartments in new built-up areas, that they are provided for. That's that's an inescapable fact, and uh, that creates challenges. And we must see what is the best way to, to overcome those challenges. But I, the councillor, and the planning authority can't ignore that mm. uh, that burden on us either. But then, is the legislation realistic? Well, let me put, let me turn it on its on its head. What's the point of building one bedroom apartments when people need three bedroom apartments? Who does who, who benefits from that? I take your point, but at the same time, isn't there a danger, as I say, that um, developers will sort of say, well, there's no money in for us, so we're, we're, we're not interested? Well, there's challenges there, but at the same time, then you have Hammersons who have a site, and ultimately, I presume, they want to they want to generate a revenue office. And this, the, the, the fact that they need to build more three-bedroom does have an impact on their revenue stream. They can leave it idle and have no revenue or they can try and utilise it to the benefit of everybody, including themselves. So, Jim, what's your own take uh, on, on um, trying to sort out this clash now, this, 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 well, this problem? Well, the way I look at this, every interest group tries to defend, uh, you know, their interests. Every stakeholder tries to defend their interests. What I would say here is that 
all the developers are coming forward saying they have difficulty with this because it's not in their initial interests. However, I would put it back to everybody that if there's a requirement that this county council needs to ensure that there are more three-bedroom apartments in built-up areas, then we have both uh, a, a legislative uh, requirement to do that, but I would say a moral obligation. There is no point building one-bedroom apartments when the requirement is for three-bedroom apartments. Understood, but then the costs then of, of um, selling those apartments to in, in an area such as as Dundrum or indeed area can be quite high as well. Oh, there is a as I say, we have to finalise the the plan, and uh, again, as a county councillor, I'll have to ask very hard questions of the executive. They will have to demonstrate without without any doubt this is the requirement, this is what is needed, and we'll work from there. But at the same time, we can't, we can't, you're dead right, there might be a cost associated with this. But, uh, you know, again, it kind of comes down to the fundamentals. Do we want Dunleary to continue to be a family-based county or do we, or, or, or are we only going to cater for, uh, you know, single people and people starting off? Mm. You know, we need to, we need to be able to do both. And the requirement here is that in the built-up area, only 20% of the units three-bedroom. It's, it's, it's 20%. Right. So that still leaves that 80% of, of an apartment complex will be a, a, a studio, one-bed and two-bed mix. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, just before we finish up, um, Jim, um, we've discussed this before, these uh, controversial strategic housing developments. Um, I believe they're winding up now. They will be winding up in February. Yes. Now, the, now what that effectively means, I think, uh, you had to have the pre-planning uh, discussions already initiated with the um, uh, on board plural and the local authorities by the end of, of last October. So if you missed that deadline, you've missed the deadline completely. But if you did have conversations with Ambor Planola and the local authorities back in October, then the end date for you is February. And effectively that means then between the Jews and the Reels, we will still be looking at SHDs probably into the summer of, of next year. But they're due to be replaced by a new initiative called large-scale residential uh, developments. And they'll have similar characteristics to the SHDs except on the, the key difference being that they will go to the local authority in the very first instance. So the, the, the application will go to the local authority, but the local authority will be subject to strict deadlines in terms of, uh, you know, being able to uh, uh, indicate decisions, uh, both in terms of, uh, to, to the developer. So what we'll see is, is the big change will be instead of applications going straight to Umbor Canola, they'll now go to the local authority and then they can be appealed when you say the local authority, does that mean the councillors and the executive are, are both? Oh, you see, the way it works, it, it, when it comes to planning permissions, and it has always been the way, planning permissions never went to councillors. So planning permissions only ever went to the planning department, the executives. So uh, the decision was always made by the executive. It has never been made by councillors. Councillors set policy the executive always made the decision. So there's no change in principle there at all. So when the planning application goes to the local authority, it's to the planning department in the local authority. And the other question I have for you is the whole idea of um, them going through Bonpropanola was just to um, speed up the uh, the application process. They, they, they found that bureaucracy was was, was, was holding up planning in, in councils. Um, will that not be a factor, surely, going going forward with the, uh, with the well, council? There'll be, set, there'll be new deadlines set. So again, roughly off the top of my head, you will, you will enter into pre-planning uh, negotiations with the local authority. And I think at maximum they have eight weeks to say, yeah, you have an application that you can put forward. Uh, and then once the developer puts in the application, uh, the local authority has, uh, again, I might be wrong, either six to eight weeks to give a decision. So again, the timelines will be tight. Um, if it's appealed to Umbar Panala, I think they have 16 weeks to turn it around. Very good. So, yep. so the idea is to try and keep these things as efficient as possible. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what happens now. Um, when the the uh, draft, sorry, the, the county plan is still, the county development plan is still in draft. When when do you think it will be? Um, we have meetings. We have four or five meetings scheduled for the beginning of February. And once we have uh, finalised that, uh, it becomes 
uh, law, shall I, or the regulation yeah. sometime in March. Okay. So, so, so we what we have to do now as individual councillors, we have to look at all the different submissions submissions yeah. made by by the developers, see how much merit each and each of them have, and then we have to get the. the I would say when it comes to the to the apartment mix issue, get the uh, the uh, executive to explain the rationale, go through the numbers with us again, and then we will have to make some very difficult decisions. Mm, very interesting. So there could be some movement from from both sides, developers okay. and 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 the council going forward. I, I, I suppose technically the developers have put in their pitch; they have made their point through the public submissions process. Then ultimately, based on whatever factors it could well be, the councillors decide. Uh, taking everything into account, we will we will look to reduce the ratio from twenty percent oh, to some okay. other number. Okay. I would yeah. say that that is unlikely. Yeah. If management are very robust in, in uh, and successfully articulate why the 20% is essential. But ultimately, it will be the decision of the 40 local councillors to decide what the appropriate apartment mix is. Very interesting. We'll, have, we'll, keep, uh, we will keep in touch um, between now and, and he's, he's at the end of March. The, well, the, 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 meetings, the meetings that will determine all that will happen in February. Yeah. And then the regulations be, come into effect in March. In March. Very good, Jim. That was Canada Jim O'Leary from again, who represents Dundrum uh, on Dundee right down County Council. 93.9 Dublin South FM Hello and welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So my next guest, I'm so delighted um, joining us, is Christina Buckley. Christina is a property investor and it is so difficult to get property investors to speak on the record. Christina, I'm so delighted you agreed to join us today. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Carol, for inviting me. Yeah, lovely, lovely to, to be on the show. I'm a great follower. Ah, uh, you're very good. Um, Christina, your background, and I know I, I I come across you over the years because our Dublin is such a small market, um, but your background, I know, originally was in accounting. And you, but you, how long have you been involved in property investing? Um, so about 20 years now, it was around about 2004 when we first bought our first site and uh, we developed that. Uh, we built a block of townhouses um, and um, that, I suppose, really was our, uh, we, we jumped in the deep end, but a fantastic project, worked out very well. Within nine months, had it built and rented. So it was great to get back to the bank after nine months. Um, you know, we had a 12-month moratorium, so when we were back to them after 12 months, uh, the properties were built and rented. So that was a, a fantastic uh, way to start. And uh, it's just been a whirlwind journey ever since, I suppose. I got the bug then. Absolutely love everything to do with property. And, Do you know, uh, coming coming into the market in 2004, you probably had just a few years, obviously, before the crash hit. So tell me, how different is the marketplace today, 2022, as compared to what it was in 2004? Um. It can be similar in some ways because, you know, people are saying that we're, you know, we're at the top of the market and that, you know, but I don't think the craziness is there, you know, in relation to the lend and the banks are being very prudent and in relation to, I suppose, the the, the lack of supply um, and the need, you know, we're, we haven't um, we haven't built, you know, 20,000 more houses than we need. If anything, we've built 30,000 30, less a year than we need, you know, for years and years and years. So I think we have a bit of catching up to do. And I do think that the central bank guidelines, as hard as they can be on people, that they really are kind of keeping everything in check and in keeping the banks as well. The banks are, are very much in check in relation to their lending. So um, I, I don't think I don't think it compares. One doesn't compare to the other, you know. Yeah, no, that that's a fair assessment. Now, I have to say in relation to the, the bank's macroprudential rules, you know, I, I do think we've overcorrected there. We are so overly cautious in terms of, or in the context by comparison with other EU countries. And, you know, I wonder if for first time buyers and for home buyers, we were to go from 3.5 times salary to 4.5 times salary, you know, would that be stepping outside the lines of what's sensible? I'm not sure that it would be. 
No, I don't. I don't. Th- I definitely think yeah, there's room to maneuver there. All right, and um, there's been a tight uh, reins put on it, and there was a reason for that. But as you say, things are changing, and you know, properties haven't st- stood still when those rules. I mean, when did those rules come out? They were you know a couple of years ago. So I mean, nothing stands still in the property market. So I do think it's an evolving situation, and you know, uh, regulation, and that has to evolve with it. So if there's been an increase in property we can't stay stuck at that price because I don't think salaries are increasing at the same rate as property you know yeah that's exactly it Christina and is it all residential you deal with yeah, so um, it is. It's all residential. Yes, um, we basically have those properties that we built, um, and we rent them as a student uh, accommodation. So we're student Pacific accommodation. Um, is our our registration with the RTB. So, um, as I say, that was one of our first projects, and then we went on then to buy other property, and um, in some cases, you know, where they had maybe sites at the side, and we split the title deeds and you know, maybe developed one or two properties in, in the in the separate portfolio. And then we've also um, been involved in other sites where they've maybe um, worked through the process of getting the original plans drawn up and looked at what's possible, I suppose, to build, you know, have a good connection in relation to town planners and QSs and my own architect is fantastic. So, um, yeah, so we, we we tend to sort of work through things and see if we can add value anywhere we can add value. Um, some things get overlooked. The two properties I bought in the pension were a perfect example of properties that had been vacant, sitting there for two years empty, and I drove by them every day. So it just constantly kind of got to me that you know two fantastic properties in a very good area and um, with the property need that there is out there we're sitting there empty yeah now there's so, uh, there's two things you've touched on there in terms of the development opportunities but also buying property through your pension now the latter there is something i definitely want to get into um later in in the interview but let's go back to the development opportunities because i i love when i hear people talking about um the smaller opportunities that absolutely overlooked is, is the right term. Um, but so much of this depends on local knowledge, and um, but also the, the ability to recognize an opportunity that others might overlook. So actually, will you, will you talk us through maybe some of the more specific ones there? Because the experience of property development, um, certainly at that scale, I'm not sure how much that's changed over the past 15 years. So can you talk to us maybe about how you find those opportunities or recognise them for what they are? Um, Well, I suppose there's still a lot of houses that have the ability maybe for an infield site. Um, And this has been highlighted by a lot of people over the last few years. And um, I think it's something that needs to be looked at, you know, where it can be done um, correctly and where it can be um, add value to the area. And, you know, I suppose certain areas you know you're going to buy a site and develop it out it's going to cost you the same amount of money to to develop the the property um and obviously your site cost might be dearer but the end value is that much higher you know that we find a lot of people really chasing the same few sites where if you go into an area that maybe isn't as like what the areas i i would work in now um you would be hard pushed to build them out and at the end of the day you know the 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 cost you know you have to watch the costs and the margins are tight but at the same time very successful projects and you're creating more houses and they rent very well and i think long-term strategy shouldn't be overlooked it is difficult and it's not for the faint-hearted. On one particular site, we bought a cottage that had a big garden at the back and at the side, and um, we had to go for planning three times. Um, Yeah, so... um, How long did that process take? That whole process probably took about two years. Um, And the first option was two houses, and then the second option was two dormer bungalows, which was absolutely fabulous. Um, I was brokenhearted over that one because there's a lot of work goes into it and planning them out and you're you're reading what's available and what's needed. And, you know, the smaller accommodation really is what's needed. And um, the one and two beds and even just options for people in the area to downsize, you know, um, 
so I was broken hearted about that. But listen, it didn't go through. And in the end, it was a bungalow, three bedroom bungalow we got planning permission for. But um, you have to, I suppose, have a, an element of the the perseverance around it and just keep going, you know. Well, um, the perseverance is one thing, but you also need to be able to sustain the cash flow over those periods of delays as well. So how has the financing worked out? Because we know anecdotally that uh, investment or, or sorry, uh, funding for investors dried up and even now is still tough enough. So how have you found the, the uh, you know, being able to fund these and being able to withstand periods of delay? Um, with great difficulty, really, if I'm honest. Um, I don't have a, a big pot of cash anywhere, um, but um, I suppose I did have assets and we did manage to hang on to them during the recession and they had a little bit of equity in them. So we were able to... Um, you know, sort of a release equity on the mortgages and um, go into our next project. I'm lucky that my husband comes from a building background. So um, he's able to, I suppose, work his magic on that end of things, you know, in relation to if we're doing a development or we're doing a refurb or we're doing a build, um, that we have that family's experiences. Dad was general foreman in CISC for 40 years. So uh, building is in the blood, you know. So I suppose it's a combination of the two of us but I mean I would spend sometimes best part of 12 months maybe with the banks trying to get something over the line and um, I'd have at least 100 files in a Dropbox by the time maybe I get a loan offer or get an approval um, no is, is is my starting point and you have to take it like that it is a starting point you know Do you know that's that's a really good attitude to have you know that that knows the starting point you built there so you would actually often have to go through that volume of of requests and applications before you actually get the funding you need. Yes. And I mean, we would have property and we'd be to have a lot of experience. And um, I suppose it's knowing as well where to go, you know, the right banks to go to, because there's only certain banks that are interested in the buy to lets, you know, even though they'll all tell you they are. But there actually is only a handful of banks that actually are interested in the buy to let market, seriously interested, you know. Yeah. And I, that, I, you know, I'm really glad you've made that point because it, it frustrates me so much when I hear mortgage companies um, purporting to lend to certain classes. And sometimes it might be first time buyer self-building or it might be uh, for people to, to renovate derelict homes. And actually, these are the ones that fall bottom of the list. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear you calling that out. Um, in terms of who you're competing with when you go into the marketplace, are you finding it a problem? Because obviously it takes a huge amount of time to get that kind of finance in place. Are you losing out on opportunities then to maybe cash ready buyers? Um, sometimes I've had to, as I say, release equity and then have the control over the finance to to actually do things. Um, on the last particular site that I was talking to there about the cottage, we had to buy that outright ourselves using our existing assets by raising more finance. So we had the free hand to carve up the title deed, split the folio and then apply for planning. Uh, so you have to think through each step stage by stage by stage and de-risk it and see, well, how can you do this? Sometimes people jump into things and then they find themselves that maybe they've tied themselves up with a first charge and then they can't start looking at the site. You know, the bank then owns the site and the garden, you know. So you really have to go into something with your eyes open and strategically look at it and say, well, OK, if I buy this house and, you know, as I say, Will it have the opportunity for planning permission? Planning permission is very, very difficult. I don't think anything in black and white and regulations has been changed, even though there's a lot of talk that there's been changed. But when I look at the regulation, it seems to be the same regulations we were looking at in 2004, you know, um, even a, a site that might be uh, to the side or to the back, you know, you'd need the, the full five metres for the, you know, for the fire brigade to go down. So, you, you know, even though it ends up only being a driveway into that home, Home and it's only one house it still has to have all of tick all of those boxes which I fully agree with you know it does have to have all those things um 
But even when it does have everything and you still get a no, that's a bit hard sometimes. But listen, it is what it is. You know, like the last one we had to do a sound report on the decibels of a car starting up in, you know, and during the day, you know, four or five times and maybe a couple of times a night and a full sound report had to be done as to what the decibels would be and would it be under the World Health Organization decibels for the, you know, anyway, it was all it was all well under everything we, we needed to be, but um, it's a lot of extra hoops to jump through. There's a lot of extra hoops to jump through. Yeah. And some of them now can seem a little bit over the top. I struggled to find um, somebody to do the report because they thought it was building 50 apartments and not a house. <laughs> yeah. OK, no, and, and that's a fair. Christina, there's a rhetoric out there at the moment and I, I hear it every day and I tend to agree with it. Um, but we know that investors, private investors are leaving the, the market for every two leaving the market over the last number of years, fewer than one is is coming back in. Why do you think that is? And is it a less welcoming environment for investors into property in Ireland? Because in our discussion so far, we haven't even touched on managing tenants, you know, and we'll definitely get on, we'll definitely get on to that now in a moment. But I mean, is it your experience? And I know that you work with network of investors as well. Is it your experience that people are finding the Irish market less inviting? They are really. I mean, the the regulations has got so difficult now. You'd really want a law degree to get through most of it. You know, I mean, you you go to. I'm an accredited landlady in relation to the Irish uh, Property Owners Association and the RTB, and I would go to all of the the meetings and um, some of the meetings we went to in relation to the new regulation, which I suppose was to put everybody's mind at rest as to, um, you know, so they'd we want to do the right thing. We want to know the regulation. We want to know that we're working in the regulation. Everybody wants to do the right thing. Um, but the actual um, particular seminar was set up in relation to, I suppose, putting everybody's mind at ease. But it actually had the opposite effect, I found, on a lot of people, <laughs> particularly anybody older. You know, they were saying to themselves, like, really, you know, I, I wouldn't be able for this. And, you know, it's like the goalpost keeps moving. And even yeah. with the best of my intentions, you know, I'm going to put a foot wrong and, uh, you know, it's it's a dreadful position to be in. And, and I suppose just as I say, I feel strongly, you know, um, the label nearly needs to be changed. Accommodation provider instead of landlord it has such, you know, uh, it just has such um, uh, negative connotations and it's been banned. Yeah. So many, it, yeah. yeah, and it particularly has a negative connotation in Ireland, you know, um, because landlord really meant something different a century and a half ago to, to what it means today. Um, you've touched on a couple of really great things there that, that I, I want to break down, because when we talk about property investing in Ireland at an individual level being less attractive um, than it was, there are so many reasons for this. You know, you've got the higher, much higher buy-in costs, uh, the difficulties in accessing finance. Um, you've got much more burdensome um, regulations. And by the way, I think it's really important to point out that obviously we want regulations, we want high standards, we want high quality of providers, and but we also want high quality of tenants. And this is where we get to the tenant management. First of all, do you manage your own tenants? I do, yes. I'm very yeah. hands-on now with my own property there for the last um, 15, 16 years. Yeah, so I've managed okay. my own properties and I enjoy managing my own properties and I think it kind of works as well. I think if you uh, provide a really good quality property and you are hands-on and manage it yourself, um, I suppose that just, well, in, I've been maybe lucky, but definitely um, have found that um, it has worked well for me. Yeah, I, I think you'd probably have to accredit it to something more than luck if you've had 15 or 16 years of, of you know, broadly positive experiences. Um, that definitely comes down to more than luck. And um, But may I ask then, in your opinion, uh, where is the balance lying in terms of, you know, we want quality accommodation, we want quality providers, and we want um, protection for both landlords and tenants. Do you think the current regime protects the interests of both the landlord and the tenant equally? Um, 
I don't think so. No, I think I think it has kind of gone to the other side. Really, it's as I say, when people want to buy property, like maybe as their pension, you know, which is fantastic. And that's what I, I think. I mean, I think of an Irish person buys property as a pension and they're providing for their own pension. They're basically, um, you know, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, looking after themselves in their old age and they're not going to be reliant, even though obviously they'll have their state pension there as well. Like it's doing the right thing all the way down the road, but less and less and less people want to get involved because they just feel that they're not maybe being represented and they're not being uh, looked after in the situation. I suppose even with the tax element of it, it's it's so punitive. It's, you know, if they have a daytime job and they're working, you know, the next 20 or odd years, 30 odd years, and are hoping that the property will be their pension at the end of the day, they're already paying 20% tax and they're universal social charge and PRSI in their daytime job and then if they try to do the property then as well it falls into the higher tax bracket and then you're in at you know 52% really when all of that comes in I suppose the tax could look at that in relation to could this be seen more as a business you know than a unearned income you know because it's very my experience is very hands-on I don't think there's anything unearned about it I get up early every morning and so does my husband and we've done that for 20 years and we've worked very hard at it um you know so it's kind of I just think the the whole tax system behind it is I I you know it's really okay. just and, and you then if we compare, say, the tax treatment of individual investors versus, say, the institutional landlords, how do you reconcile that? I don't really, you know. Um, I know they have come some ways to alter that, and so they pay some tax. But um, it's obviously the way they want the system to go and they want to get maybe rid of mum and pap landlord you know um but i don't think it's the right way to go i i think is when the irish property owners association did a survey on it and um, they actually said that a lot of people had less than you know uh, most most people had i think 60 percent had one property you know yeah i do you know and, and that tallies with the rtb figures as well that showed i think 80 percent um of landlords in ireland own one or two properties but the vast majority of that 87 percent owned only one property but the figure that really struck me was that um, the, the vast majority of landlords in Ireland are receiving income of under €1,000 per month after allowable expenses. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that we need to almost change the language around landlords. I, I don't think anybody who is not a landlord and carries the rhetoric of this fat cat landlord, I don't think anybody would be expecting to hear that landlords with one property uh, is receiving uh, after local expenses less than a thousand euros per month in income because it's a lot of work it's a lot of work for less than a thousand euros a month I don't think they're doing it for the now I think they're trying to secure their you know people are retiring um mm-hmm. you know maybe a 60 65 and then people are living longer so then you have that 30 well look 35 years somebody said to me recently as a life insurance situation that they used to go to 80 and then it was 85 then it was 90 and then it was 95 now they're heading towards 100 which seems a bit ludicrous but it did get me thinking about my granny that did live to the right old age of 100 you know and um you know that's 40 years you know or 35 years after you retire to fund and um as i say i know obviously the state pension is fantastic is in ireland that we have that and that can be there for you but you know if you're leaving a good job with a good income and you know you have that massive drop it's not where anybody wants to be we all want to live longer but if they could even as you say have a situation where their income they could um they could basically uh, subsidize their income with their own pension and it's the way you know the government i'm sure want people to do so it's yeah. a kind of win-win for everybody so those people that are bringing in that very low income and going through all of that work for the next 20 years while they pay their mortgage and they rent the house and they pay the high tax they're not doing it for the day today they're doing it for the future and hope that when they've got their mortgage paid down that this will be something that will be able to sustain them you know 
Yeah, but again, you pointed out that actually the regulation is definitely going more towards the institutional investors. And so it would be very difficult for individual investors and landlords to be able to uh, comply with increasingly onerous legislation. In in the last month or two, I know you wrote an excellent piece for the um, the IPOA magazine about buying property through your pension. Now, I've been involved in property for a decade and a half. Buying property through your pension is the one thing that I we still have weekly arguments about with people because there's still confusion about this. So can you talk us through this from your personal experience? Yes. Um, as I say, I can only really talk to you about my personal experience because um, that's just something that I have done. Um, we had um, basically two properties. It was in the area that I, I drove by every day and they were vacant and um, they were sitting there empty and looking very sad. And I eventually tried to figure out basically what was happening with them and they went up for sale. And then I decided we'd try and buy them, you know. Yeah. So myself and my husband went to look at buying them at that time then I was talking to my pension trustee and he said would you not try and buy them through uh, your pension and even though I have an accountancy background and I studied ACCA I just thought the whole process was so difficult and so complicated that I was afraid of it and um I'm basically on the both sides of this coin, as in I already have property personally and I understand, you know, the tax system and the pension system around uh, buying property. And I still thought it was above me, you know, so that's why I suppose I agreed to write the article for uh, when Margaret Cormack asked me for the Irish Property Owners Association because I wanted to try and demystify it a bit because it is a fantastic option for somebody if they're going to buy a buy to let to buy it through their pension. So what I did is we had a company and we were able to, um, we had to obviously our pension and we were able to um, max fund through our pension. We had obviously contributions and then the pension company, which was Grant Thornton Pension Trustees in this case, uh, Colin Murphy was fantastic, held her hand through the whole process and um, basically our uh, financial advisor then, Barry Kerr, uh, from Wildwise, he was very good. So you have to kind of look at it as a whole. For first off, I suppose, from a personal point of view, they have to find out whether you're somebody that could buy a property and would be happy with that. And, your, you know, the, your profile and everything, risk in relation to, is that something that will sit comfortably with you? So that's the first thing. And I suppose that's the financial advisor's job to go through everything and do your profile on risk and see how you, how this sits with you. The second thing then is going through the pension trustee. They have to figure out, well, how much is in your pension? And if you got to a certain age, maybe, and you had and fully fund your pension, you do have an option to one-off fund your pension with a higher amount. Now, that amount is worked out by the actuaries in Grand Thornton Pension Trustee, and they came to me with that figure, and they said, this is what you can max fund, because over the years, we hadn't really put a lot into our pension. We'd put as much as we could, but we hadn't put a lot. And they were able to say to us, this is an option available to you. So um, so that was great. And then basically once um, we we talked about the property and we had to, they had a look at the property and then obviously you apply for the mortgage. It was interesting because I'd normally apply for everything myself. So in this particular instance, um, once you have given over the property address and decided to buy that property uh, through your pension, it's the pension trustees then that apply for the mortgage. Um, so they obviously have to state that 50% is there um, plus cost and then plus liquidity. There's a level of liquidity has to be there. So you you can't spend it all <laughs> on a property, you know, and um we were able to do a 50% loan to value on it. So we applied, um, well, they applied to um, Grant Thornton Pension Trustees to ICS, the LISC, and they applied for a 50% loan to value. And we got 
the loan, basically, you know. So um, from that point of view, the loan offer literally had one nine on it because it was the pension company applying and the pension company saying the money was there. So it was a very simple, straightforward, which was interesting to see because, as I say, I would normally be on the other side of it and, you know, going through everything. But also as a as an investor, you're very hands on through the pension. You have to be hands off. So how yes. did that um, say in terms of even getting the property ready and let, how did that translate? Yeah, so, well, the properties, you know, basically once you buy the properties, um, it, you know, they might need, you know, some some decorating and that's okay. You know, that's sort of in, in the provision of the, the thing. So the pension trustees basically would organise all of that to be done. So the work would be would be done on the properties. Generally, they don't like you to buy anything that needs a lot of work. So ideally, you're just sort of looking for something that um, can be brought back within a month or two. You know, it needs some decorating. So once it's uh, rented, then it needs to be rented through um, an auctioneer. Now, um, um, the auctioneer then is hired by the pension company and then the property is rented. So that was the process for us. You know, it is different. It's completely different to what I'm used to. Um, but I kind of enjoyed it, strangely enough. And I think maybe the hands off way might be the way to go forward, you know, because that's an interesting that's an interesting one, because I would have thought that would be the part that you'd really have a difficulty with. I'm just so happy to drive by and see two properties completely, you know, finished and rented and now being used. They were beautiful properties just sitting empty, you know, and um, I'm also very happy with the fact that the rent will obviously accrue in the pension without any tax liability. And um, looking at the other properties I have personally versus them like it's a literally a two for one you know situation mm-hmm. where I'd have to have two properties personally with the high level of tax um to get the same income that I'm getting in the pension with one property so it literally is as simple as that advantage wise you know so I'm kind of thinking maybe I've been a busy fool Karen all, <laughs> Carol all these years you know <laughs> you know I and yet as you say uh the the income is treated as unearned income mm-hmm. exactly. uh, you know that's kind of one of the ironies of, of investing in property um so having been through that experience now you know you can see where the market is you've alluded to it at the start there that you know there's there were certainly hopefully around a peak what comes after the peak we don't know will it be a period of stagnation will it be a period of uh, price price drops um some falling what's your strategy over the next two to three years well i suppose sorry just meant to finish off there on the pension we bought our two pension properties uh, through, um, it was the small self-administered pension. Now, IORPS 2 came in there in April, so it did change the regulation around that. And now in that structure, you can only use 50% of the funds in that. So there's a, there's a couple of different things. And there's so no- the liquidity requirement is higher? Um, well, the IORPS 2 means that I would say the small self-administered pension going forward now would maybe not be the mechanism to be used in relation to buying property because you can only use half of the money in there and you can't get lending in the small um, uh, the small pension, basically the SAP, as they would call it. Um, but uh, there is a situation where you can now buy property through a buyout bond or through a self-administered PRSA. So just to say that, Carol, sorry, I know not, I'm not answering your no, question. No, no, this exactly. is, but this is really helpful because obviously yeah. we want, you know, obviously we're only sharing your experience. We're certainly not giving uh, any financial or property advice, but it's, it's good to understand that actually since you've gone through this, there has been mm-hmm. a change. There has been a big change and a lot of people think that the change means that they cannot buy property through their pension. And that's just what I wanted to say. You can absolutely buy property through your pension. You may have to go through a different structure and there is several different structures you can use and you obviously would have to get advice on them. But um, just to to get that out there, because a lot of people have said to me, God, that's fantastic. That's great. You did that now. But that IORPS too came in in April and now that's not possible. And that really is the rhetoric 
rhetoric out there is that it's just not possible now. And I just wanted to say it absolutely is possible. The banks are lending to the other um, the other different types of pension structures. And, you know, you can you can basically look into that, as I say. But be prepared to have perseverance and deal with plenty of paperwork. Yes, you do have a lot of people helping you. I mean, I suppose for me, where I'm used to working through things on my own, um, it was fantastic. Like you have a team of professionals around you. You have, you know, your your pension trustee advisor and you have your financial advisor. And um, everything was was very straightforward. As I say, sometimes a lot of regulation around something makes it simpler, makes it easier, makes it like looking through a window. Everything is very, very visible. You know exactly what's happening, you know exactly what the fees are. I found the whole thing very reassuring, but maybe that's my account's background that I just like structure and it was very straightforward and that's why I I feel sad that people think it's not doable you know well look hopefully you you, you've done a lot to change to change some of the thinking around that today Christina and actually I'm going to have to go back and listen to this interview again to really understand it and actually be able to go through the steps again but um, thank you so much for being so uh, generous with your time as I mentioned at the start Property investors are very slow and property developers are very slow to speak out. And I wish they would speak out more because then we actually could help to maybe identify chokeholds in the system, areas for policy redress that's required. You know, we do need for the industry to speak up. And I think it's particularly important now when, you know, um, not just around landlords, whether it's private or or, uh, institutional, because the last thing we want to do is pit any buyers in the marketplace against each other because we know that um, there's a whole raft of different types and tenures of housing needed. So all of these suppliers are needed in the market. So we definitely don't want to pit one, one against the other. However, there should be a greater balancing of interests. Um, and I think that's maybe what needs to happen next. Um, Christina, do you, do you want to tell us about your strategy over the next two to three years? How are, are you? How are you looking at the the midterm market? Um, well, I suppose I just kind of continue the way I am really at the moment and see see what comes. I I. I I want to end, I suppose, on a little bit of a happy note. <laughs> My happy note is I do think there is some sort of hope out there in relation to the young people. You know, they're very well educated and they want to get involved and they're very clever and they're smart. And I, I think, um, you know, that there is places, as you say, you have. Um, I've been very involved in the the um, the PPN, as it's called. It's the Dublin Property Meet. Uh, Stephen uh, O'Sullivan runs and um, Stephen's ran that for years. And, you know what I mean, with great sacrifice on his part you know to host it and get speakers and you know and network I think is the key you know um, it certainly was the key for me to meet other like-minded people and there is plenty of them out there you know um, from all different walks of property is such a massive industry and then we have a platinum property now Paul Bean has set up and he's doing a training around you know buy to lets and from the ground up training <laughs> they won't be going in thinking that they're going to get rich quick he's going to go work them through their paces on every step of the way you know Paul is very practical in relation to property and um, I do think yeah people will get involved and my own son as I say is doing property economics so um, I do think the future is safe I do think they'll get involved and they'll work through the processes and uh, hopefully they'll be part of the solution because we all need to be part of the solution it's not as you say one versus the other it's a question of everybody getting involved and being part of the solution yeah, Christina, look, that's a that's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much. And thank you for being so generous with your time. That was Christina Buckley, Property Investor. And that's it from Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon, this week. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Luke Delaney and Peter Rice on sound. We'll be back at the same time next week. For now, that's it. Thank you.